Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some news stories about Land Rover winning the Women's World Car of the Year and Nissan is developing a more efficient internal combustion engine. One of our interviews is with Nadine Armstrong who was one of the two women on the judging panel of the Women's World Car of the Year award. We then reflect on some car companies that have produced products that they say are aimed at women. And in the two final interviews, we talk to Brian Smith on how we let vehicle access, including garbage trucks, dominate our urban street design. And Paul Morell tells us about the new electric Porsche, whose name is likely to be mispronounced. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going. Let's begin with the news. To coincide with International Women's Day, the Land Rover Defender was announced as the supreme winner of the Women's World Car of the Year Award. Judges commended Defender's distinctive design, all-conquering off-road capability, excellent on-road dynamics and 21st century practicality and connectivity. The judging panel consisted of 50 women journalists from around the world, including Nadine Armstrong from Australia. The overall and category winners reflected a typical list that would have come from an all-male judging panel. Nadine said, "I think it's it's funny when you think about a Women's World Car of the Year. It's you know we're 50 judges and from 38 countries, and at the end of the day, we're all looking at very similar things. So we look at similar judging criteria as any car award would, whether it's price and practicality, whether it's you know safety and technology, comfort and driving dynamics. So." I think, you know, all of the good cars are really always going to rise to the top, no matter who is judging them, I think. But she also added... I suspect that this time next year we'll be looking at a very different list of contenders as well. I, I suspect, you know, as you move forward, things like, you know, emissions and, you know, even, you know, manufacturers' carbon footprints may even play a part in the cars that we decide to put forward. Celebrating International Women's Day, Maserati retold the story of Maria Teresa de Philippus, the first woman to qualify for a Formula One Grand Prix. Not surprisingly, she was driving a Maserati 250F. Maria was born in Naples in 1926 and participated in a first race in 1948. She won the 10km Salerno Carva de Torini 500cc class of the touring car category, decisively beating her male colleagues. In 1955, she moved to a Maserati 2000A6 GCS. She said of the vehicle, a powerful car with which I felt I could do anything, and I did. She added, poor car, so many spectacular accidents, but also so many victories. In 1958, behind the wheel of a private Maserati 250F, Maria made her debut in the GP of Syracuse and then competed in her first Formula One World Championship Grand Prix in Belgium. Nissan is developing a more efficient internal combustion engine for road cars that could reach 50% thermal efficiency. Thermal efficiency is a measure of how much of the heat energy generated by combustion is actually converted into useful work. 
A car engine might have a thermal efficiency of only 30%, but clever designs such as the Atkinson cycle engine can raise this to around 40%. The Mercedes Formula 1 engine is said to have an energy efficiency of around 50%, but that uses some very advanced and complicated technology. One of the difficulties in internal combustion engines is that they have to operate over a rev range and under varying loads. Nissan's concept is to have an engine that runs at a constant speed that drives a generator to provide electric power to a battery that can then drive an electric motor through various road situations. When governments talk about spending money on infrastructure, we usually think of a few road and railway projects. But the projects we choose to build should not be just about doing more of the same. COVID-19 and modern technology have pushed planning and development in new directions. Infrastructure Australia has just published their 2021 priority list. They are an independent group that advises governments, industry and the community on investments and reforms needed to deliver better infrastructure for all Australians. Their list indicates that access will involve an increased focus on new energy sources, regional towns and digital connectivity. Their key themes are opportunities to develop export gateways to support Australia's international competitiveness, investments in new sources of energy and enabling infrastructure for hydrogen exports, driving economic development in regional communities and improving digital connectivity, investment to support digital health services in regional and remote Australia, and addressing challenges around strategic planning for water capture, use and management. And that has been the news. The Women's World Car of the Year Award has just been announced. The judging panel was 50 women motoring journalists from around the world. Two were from Australia, Liz Swanton and Nadine Armstrong. Nadine joins us on the line today. G'day, Nadine. Hey, David. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm very well. Now, you're the consumer editor for carsales.com.au. You're on that editorial team. What sort of issues does that involve? Um, yeah, I've been with the car sales team for about eight years now, and um, I guess it involves anything when you think about, you know, buying, selling, owning a car, and it's trying to make sure that we have a just a more consumer sort of lens on things, I think, Um you know, not everybody thinks the way motoring journalists do around, you know, kilowatts and newton meters and, you know, zero to 100 times. So we, we look at, um, you know, practical matters around space and amenity. Um, people buy cars around their lifestyles and life stages, don't we? So, you know, and that can change at the drop of a hat these days, um, depending on whether you have a job with one or five children. Uh, I think I think you'll understand that dilemma. <laughs> the car that you want may not be the one you need at the time. That diversity, particularly... With a changing world, COVID has been an immense change in a very short time. To be able to have that flexibility and understanding of the complex or varied issues of which people get involved with their motor vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, something we found during the past 12 months, um, you know, the car sales readership has, has been excellent and people have actually been consuming it. You know, people are, um, you know, have their phone in their hand all the time and also people have been at home on their screens. So we were able to, um, deliver a lot of advice related stories as well. Um, again, the, you know, the things that people don't always think about, about maintaining your car or about, or even little things around, you know, uh, safety checks that you should do before you go, you know, we've got Easter holidays coming up, the kind of things that families should be doing, you know, 
you know, check your tire pressures, check your spare tire. Have you have you got an RACV membership and so on? So um, yeah, there are a lot of things to think about in owning a car, not just sort of getting from A to B. We've lost the regularity of that. I try to think about doing it every time I get a credit card bill or something. That it it becomes a trigger. Mm. Uh, cars are much easier to hop into and forget about these days. Yeah, that, that's a great process. If you can sort of have a, a cycle of which you do it, whether it's every month or you know, depending on how often you actually go and fill up your car or mm. it, it is one of those things that if you can just work it into a regular routine and it just becomes like that and, you, and you know, it is something you do and tyre pressures, as we know, can significantly change the way your car handles and how it operates in the safety manoeuvres. Do you think road tests are evolving, that they're changing a lot now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we always try and test cars and, and really keep in mind, you know, their intended purpose. So, you know, if you're testing a, a 911, you, you're probably going to focus on, you know, handling dynamics and, you know, 0 to 100 times. Whereas if you're in a Kia Sorento, it's going to be a, a very different proposition. It's going to be about bums on seats and safety and, you know, family friendly amenity. So, yeah, I think um, particularly car sales, we have a, a really good focus on really understanding, you know, who the buyer is and, and then you actually you know, speak to that market. Yes, I once read a road test that talked about Toyota Camry that had understeer problems at, on sweeping corners at 180 kilometres an hour. I thought perhaps that's not really aiming at the market. No, no, unless that was a, you know, a taxi driver under, under the pump. I'm not really sure <laughs> who, who would be driving a Camry in that way, but, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought of the taxi driver. Now, in one way, the... Women's World Car of the Year Awards, uh, which was a combination of many views. Not, mm. I'm not just saying that they were your absolute choices, but they did tend to choose cars which you would expect from more traditional testosterone fuel male journalists. Is it hard to show diversity in these awards? No, I don't think so. I think it's it's funny when you think about a Women's World Car of the Year. It's you know we're 50 judges and from 38 countries and. You know, at the end of the day, we're all looking at very similar things. So we look at similar judging criteria as any car award would, whether it's price and practicality, whether it's you know safety and technology, comfort and driving dynamics. So I think you know all of the good cars are really always going to rise to the top, no matter who is judging them. I think there are developing trends. So there was no sort of hybrid there. There's a, a whole range of vehicles that are becoming interesting as well there was certainly an electric vehicle but that was in the electric vehicle class do you think that those future directions may well come into vehicles that we choose not just for where they are now but where we're heading yeah absolutely i suspect that this time next year we'll be looking at a very different list of contenders as well i I suspect you know, as you move forward, things like you know emissions and you know even you know manufacturers' carbon footprints may even play a part in the cars that we decide to put forward. The modern, particularly the interface, the infotainment, is really one that takes a lot to get used to. When when I was young, that does reflect some time ago. <laughs> you adjusted the mirrors and you adjusted the seat. Now you almost if you get into a new car, do you find that one-week unfamiliarity syndrome that road testers get? There's almost not enough time to be able to to learn all its nuances. Yeah, I think I think there's something to be said because we do always have to sort of sit back and think, well, any, anyone that takes ownership of a new car, 
would usually get that sort of handover opportunity and someone would take them through their technology and how it all works or they may have a mate that has the same make and model who could who do that but um we kind of jump in and out of cars and I, I guess we focus a little bit on you know how intuitive things are which is always a really good sign of well executed vehicle I think so if you've really got to work hard to figure something out I think something's wrong um you know, we all have our own little foibles and, you know, preferences of whether we like, you know, touch screens or, you know, dial, dial, um, you know, Mazda's dial up pad or do we, you know, Lexus's haptic touch pad, which I'm averse to. So there are always sort of little, um, quirks that will lead us to, to one vehicle or another. Nadine, this has been lovely and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You are so welcome, David. And that's Nadine Armstrong, who is the consumer. Editor for carsales.com.au that is also one of the women who was on the judging panel of the Women's World Car of the Year Award. You're listening to Overdrive. When talking to Nadine about the Women's World Car of the Year Award, it reminded us of some of the past attempts to market certain car models as being designed for women. The Dodge La Femme of 1956 was described by their marketing department as being distinctively feminine, distinctively yours, and America's most glamorous car designed with the ladies in mind. It was given a clear plastic roof over the entire passenger compartment, where I presume the marketing department felt that ladies would always be sitting, and had distinct soft colours, such as Dusty Road and Pigeon Grey, in order to convey femininity. For all the talk about soft feminine features, many of the classic car publications and websites list sports cars as being highly desirable to the female gender. Not necessarily the biggest ones, but those like the Triumph TR6, the Thunderbird and the 356 Porsche. There also seems to be a preference for convertibles. You know, the first Ford Mustang, which was a mid-sized car when released in 1964, was sold to Gail Wise. It was a sky blue convertible. At last report, she still had it. The American Plymouth brand seemed to do a lot of marketing aimed at women as petrol heads, not sweet, shy, winsome young ladies. The Plymouth satellite was marketed with what it is depends on a gal's idea of what a car should be. They went on to say pop tops probably wouldn't have been an overnight smash with people like Queen Victoria or the Grand Duchess of Fenwick. That's an interesting reference to the Peter Sellers movie The Mouse That Roared. They also said, your nearby Plymouth dealer will be happy to show you all our women winning ways. The Plymouth Satellite was also one of the feature cars in the 1991 movie, They Call Me Macho Woman. To my knowledge, it didn't win an Oscar. Now, in Australia, there was the feminization of the Holden Barina. In 2014, I wrote at the time that Holden had good success in selling to the female market with the Barina, about 60% of their sales on current numbers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, although you do not want to stereotype the feminine market on superficial issues, assuming, for example, that women are only interested in the colour of the car. I went on to say women can have discerning tastes in all aspects of car design and performance. And in fact, the colour for the performance barina wasn't demure at all. It was called Orange Rock, which was a bright burnt orange colour. 
The advertising, as I remember, had an animated presentation of a young lady who puts the top down on the car and the wind blows her hair into a flyaway look, but not scrappy. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, Porsche has launched an all-electric model, and I'm not going to show my ignorance by trying to pronounce its name. Better to go to an expert, and we have on the line Paul Morell from SeniorDriverOz.com. Paul, help me here. How do I pronounce something that looks like Tay Can? David, you and the rest of Australia are going to have a real problem getting their mouths around the pronunciation. It is the Porsche Tay Can. Why? Okay, it's going to be one of those ones where everyone's going to mispronounce. I suppose I could be saying the Porsche. You could. Rather than Porsche, yeah, Porsche, yep. as in the Merchant of Venice. So I guess that it allows the pretentious to correct me. Is that right? Well, I didn't correct you, David. <laughs> I wasn't assuming you were part of that cohort. <laughs> You've seen the car. I have. What sort of size is it? What sort of vehicle is this electric vehicle? It's a really interesting uh, category all round. It's a little bit smaller, obviously, than the Panamera, but it's a four-door car, a little tighter in the back seat than perhaps the Panamera, but very practical on, on just about every level you can think about and a very pretty car to boot. The Panamera, to my mind, looked a bit long and gawky for its shape. It looked like one of those guys that extends you know, Holden Caprices into funeral cars, purses, mm. added a bit to a Porsche 911. I never thought the Panamera was a, a, a good-looking car, but looking at pictures of this Taycan, it looks, to my mind, more balanced. It certainly does. The I agree with you that the Panamera looked a little bloated. Mm. Maserati sort of got much closer to being right with the with the Maserati Quattroporte. Mm. Panamera and the Quattroporte are in the same category, same class. The Taycan being just a little bit smaller, just it's a better balanced looking car. I just think it looks very, very pretty. And from certain angles, looks like a 911, which is always the gold standard for Porsche, as we know. You know, and I'm going to offend you here, I mean, apart from the pretentious comment, <laughs> I've grown a little tired of 911s, yet I think this one suits that shape rather well. I always thought a 911, the next model, never made the old model look out of date, it just made it look like it's evolving, but I think it's may have been around for such a long time. So my personal preference is I think this new Taycan is a better looking vehicle. To some extent, I guess it's a case of familiarity breeding contempt. Hmm. I mean, if the Porsche was a rarer car than it was, the 911 in particular, they'd probably be worth an awful lot more money than they are uh, secondhand. But, you know, Porsche can ask pretty well whatever it likes for its cars, particularly the 911 because they're in that category of no one argues with them about the purchase price, so they can go in wherever they like. That's uh, significant because the Taycan does not come cheap, does it? It doesn't come cheap, but of course, as always, these things are relative. It starts just under $200,000, which, you know, if you say it quickly, doesn't sound too bad unless you look at my bank account. But at $200,000, that's still forty or $50,000 cheaper than the cheapest 911. And, of course, like all Porsches, the price goes rocketing up as soon as you start going up up the, up the model scale. There are only three models. There's the Taycan 4S, and then there's the Taycan Turbo, and the Taycan Turbo S. Um, so they have three models in the range. But Turbo is a misnomer. 
Oh, completely. Um, you know, you wonder if it isn't almost misleading because you just don't have a turbo, as you well know, and probably most of your listeners would know. You just don't have a turbo on an electric vehicle. Um, it's 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 ludicrous. It doesn't happen. But Porsche's argued their argument is that it's called the turbo because in their range the turbo indicates the top spec, the high performance model, rather than a car fitted with a turbocharger. Go figure. Turbo's become a generic term rather than a specific description. Well, it has for them. What does it peak out at? There's one hundred ninety to two hundred thousand dollars for the entry level. What is the Turbo S going to cost me? Now, the Turbo S is going to cost you sort of two hundred and sixty odd thousand dollars, which is still, in Porsche terms, not too horrendous. But then there's the real top of the range, isn't there? Three hundred and thirty-eight thousand five hundred, I think. Yes, you're quite correct. I was I was looking at the middle one there. None of these cars are in the Paul Morel price range, let me assure you. You were affected by your bank balance there, Paul. <laughs> yes, you're right. The Turbo S, the so-called Turbo S, is $339,000 plus on-road costs and any options you want to lash out on. It's a Porsche first, and it's an electric vehicle second. And I think a lot of people will buy it because it's a Porsche, and despite the fact that it's an electric vehicle. It's cheaper than a 911 and it looks pretty darn good, that's a reason to get into a Porsche. I mean, their SUVs are struggling to look different, whereas I think this does have clear Porsche DNA to it. Oh, unquestionably. And as I said, it has the benefit of a back seat. It's not the world's biggest back seat, but at least it's a, a usable back seat, whereas the 911 is pretty much good for your, your briefcase or your laptop. And the Panamera is, is so much more expensive again. You sit there and say, well, now I can see where this car is going to fit very nicely in the marketplace. The top of the range, I think, has a 93 and a bit to kilowatt hours. That's pretty good. That's up around where the Jaguar I-Pace is, I think. The other ones are around the 80 or so. So we're talking now about some sizable battery power. It'll be interesting to see, as you say, the, the Porsche, the, the entry level. I love saying entry level when we talk about Porsches. The entry level is, as you say, about... 80 kilowatts, give or take. And then you can upgrade that to the bigger battery, which is a 93.4 kilowatt hour, and that's the same battery as fitted to the Turbo and the Turbo S. So there's been a little bit of cost-cutting to get the get the price obviously under $200,000. If and when you get a go, um, <laughs> you will have to tell us all about it. Paul, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, David. You're listening to Overdrive. Interesting article came out the other day about how we design our cities and what we make room for and how that dominates the shape of the cities. It wasn't very complimentary. To talk about that, our great transport planner, Brian Smith, is on the line now. Brian, did you see the article? Hi, David, I did. I did, and it certainly rings some, uh, some bells. It was particularly talking about the amount of road space we give in order to get garbage trucks down a street. That therefore dominates and dictates very much the sort of shape of the city, which isn't creating space for livability in the sense of being able to play in that, but certainly it gets rid of rubbish. Yeah, it's a good point, David. So, um, you know, we're often very conservative in uh, the sort of dimensions that we use for vehicles. We, we, we try to take the kind of almost the worst case or the 85th percentile kind of vehicle size. So this article posits that basically a lot of um, 
planning in the UK is driven by the sort of turning circle of a, of a garbage truck, a standard garbage truck. Um, and in addition to that, you know, um, emergency services vehicles are also a factor. You know, you're often asked to consider how a, a fire engine would, would get to a fire in a residential development. So we tend to, to go for these wide streets and we end up with high speeds because we've got hot, wide lanes that make it easier to drive fast. You're right, it eats up space. I mean, often when we're de designing for public transport, we're designing for you know the largest possible bus, a, a 14 and a half metre long bus, when, when most buses are about two metres smaller than that. The large garbage bins also, of course, takes up a lot of space on the footpath. If you looked particularly with people with disability in a wheelchair or a, a visually impaired person with a stick, these become great barriers. And that there's a push that says that you know, we should be walking more and more active transport and then there'll be scooters and things that perhaps we have to totally rethink how we use that space and plonking a large garbage bin on it becomes quite a barrier. I saw there's been discussions about introducing uh, kind of drones, wheeled drones into footpaths and in fact one city uh, have even gone so far as to uh, designate the, these drones as pedestrians to say, you know, in, in effect, this little vehicle trundling along carrying somebody's Amazon delivery is a pedestrian. So um, I, I imagine on bin night, it might be pretty hard for the sort of Uber Eats deliveries by these things if they're all queued up trying to get past, uh, you know, a massive uh, garbage bin. Which the dog had knocked over. Yes, uh, filled with uh, Ibis. <laughs> <laughs> all those displays those videos they put out about the the portable esky the autonomous esky that can deliver be it either a cold or even just a package or something as you say your amazon package to your house all seem to go down a very clear street with a nice footpath yes. and when they meet one pedestrian they dutifully stop and let them go past yet it's much more complex than that well, it's, it's tree roots lifting pedestrian uh, footpaths and cars parked across driveways and footpaths. This happens a lot. The utopia of these things trundling about, I think, is not very realistic. That suggests, however, that we can't just slightly modify what we're doing, that we may need to almost start with a clean sheet and say, well, OK, if we're going to go down that way, let's not just marginally widen the footpath let's see what we really need in that space that's a good point david because i think we rush too quickly to to look for technological solutions without asking what problem we're trying to solve and whether whether it's worth solving i mean if we widened our footpaths to make it easier to walk and cycle that would be fantastic if we're widening them in order to to replace walking and cycling trips with an autonomous drone, then, you know, perhaps we're approaching things in the wrong direction. We're accommodating technology rather than accommodating the social and uh, personable values or benefits that might come from starting with a clean sheet. It's that old reality, isn't it, that the old buildings had an awning when we had an understanding that there'd be a lot of walking. Yes, and it's almost a give me to the car that we now build buildings without awnings. 
Yeah, and this is also architectural, isn't it, David, that, that people don't want their a view of their building to be interrupted by something that protects the people that they they would hope be uh, looking at their, uh, their sort of phallic symbolism. The other side of that walking too, of course, is whether it's dark or not. Yes. It's all very well to theorise about it in the perfect sunlight of people walking, but what happens if one's doing it after nine o'clock at night yeah. when there's not lights around as much as there might be? There's a lot of factors I think we need to consider in there in a very open way, but maybe we need to be more government input into being more strident with an understanding of what the future might be. Yeah, and, and plan for people, plan for, for to make life better for people rather than to make life more convenient for corporations. How about we have an awning that has a flat top to it that little autonomous eskies can run along and deliver things? <laughs> I worry about them falling out of the sky under my head, David. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And that was Brian Smith, who uh, works for the major consulting company. He is a transport expert, and he reflects about the broader aspects of planning rather than just meeting some desired needs that we see at the moment. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, Brian Smith, Nadine Armstrong and Paul Just for their great help in producing the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.